This morning we are continuing in our study through the book of Esther. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. If, if, if you don't have one, we'd love for you to take that home with you. Let that be a gift to you and your family. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, you can find a table of contents at the front of it. It's going to let you know where the book of Esther is found. And then as we make our way through, the large numbers are chapters and the small numbers are verses. This morning, we're going to start in Esther chapter 2, verses 19, and, and carry on through through chapter 3 and verse 15. Esther 2.19 through 3.15 this morning. This Christmas, uh, one of our kids was given uh, something for his, his Nintendo Switch that allows him uh, to play online. If this doesn't make sense to you, don't worry. It didn't make sense to me, and that's going to get real apparent real fast, okay? And so he gets this thing uh, that allows other members of our family also to play online. And this is great because last year he got one that was just for him so his brother couldn't enjoy it. And when we did that, it required a credit card number, which is not a big deal. It's just 20 bucks. And so we set that up and didn't check the box to turn off auto renew. And so already you begin to say, well, this, this is going to be great. And so Christmas rolls around this year and he gets a gift card from some family member for his entire family. Well, that's great. Awesome. We can all play, except for the fact the auto renew is not turned off. And so it auto renews. 20 bucks. And now you're forced with the opportunity to engage a customer service representative to try and get the $20 back or just to let it go. And so I went after it. I said, look, you know, I read a little bit of information, no refunds on digital purchases. I'm like, yeah, but is this really a digital purchase? Let's get into this. And so I thought, I've got a little bit of free time that I'd like to waste. And so I call <laughs> and I talked to Lori, the customer service representative from Nintendo. And y'all, she was amazing. Like, I felt like I was in some parallel universe where customer service reps are actually helpful, friendly, breathing humans who have a social life. And, and, and Lori had English as a, as a first language and no telling how many other languages. I mean, she was competent, wonderful, engaging, humorous. And so we're, we're there back and forthing and all these things. And she's like, oh, I'm telling her the story. And she's like, that's such a disappointment. Oh, so desperately want this to help uh, work for you. And let me look at this. And she's like, oh, it doesn't look like it can work here. Oh, let me look at this. Oh, it doesn't look. Let me look at this. Can I put you on hold for a minute? I said, yeah, that's no problem. Man, she's more into this than I am. Lori, here's my address. Just send me a check for $21.64 and we'll call it a day. Anyway, so she comes back on. Gone was the friendly gone was the lighthearted. Gone was this kind of witty back and forth thing I really thought we had. And she says, I hate to tell you this, but you violated a federal act with what you've done. And I wanted to say, Lori, you're such a jokester. But I couldn't remember her name. So I said, I'm sorry. It really said like, it really sounded like you said I broke a law. She said, you did. You violated COPA, the Child Online Privacy Protection Act. I'm sorry, Lori. What was that? Am I going to get the money back? <laughs> so Lori begins to tell me all these various ways and all these steps we have to go through. And I'm sweating in places I didn't know I could because all I've heard is you've broken a federal law and I expect the G-man to pound on the door and say, give me the switch, you're headed to jail. Right? So she's helping me go through all these things. By the end of the whole conversation, Lori's like, don't worry about this. We've got this set up. 
she's explaining things to me on the console, like this is where the home button is. I'm like, there's a home button, Lori. She's, yes, it's at the bottom right. The bottom right, from which perspective, Lori? So she's walking me through these things. I'm coming to understand it. So we get the whole thing set up. Woo, it's all set and secure and done. So the next day I go and look and it's not done. And so I go around too with a guy named Chris. And so I'm talking to Chris in this little chat feature, which is so much better than talking to somebody on a phone because you have time to think and sweat in peace, right? And so I'm back and forthing with him and all these things. Oh, I'm so sorry for that. That's such a distressing thing. I'm thinking, this is a great deal. I love Chris. He's amazing. At the end of it, he's like, you have to call. You got to speak to somebody. We got to bump this up the line, which is never a good thing. And at this point, I begin coming to this understanding that, man, no good deed goes unpunished, right? It's this understanding that I was just really trying to get this $20 back. And at the end of this, I broke a federal law, turns out. And it took three conversations to bring this to some close facsimile to resolve. And I don't even know what that is. I'm just looking around for 20 bucks to recompensate myself with now. As we look at the book of Esther today, we begin to ask the question and seek for an answer for what is the limitation for our requirement to do good? What is the limitation for our requirement to do good? You remember that as we left off the book of Esther, uh, Esther has finally been united in marriage to uh, the king, and so so excited. And then the, the, the text tells us this odd thing in chapter 2 and verse 17. It says, the king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she won the grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So we come to this understanding, and I think it kind of creates in our heart an expectation that, that he is really madly in love with her, right? Because that's what we want to see. We want to see that the king is changed. We want to see that Xerxes' heart is made alive. We want to think that what they have in this relationship is something beautiful. But the problem is verse 19 comes in, and it completely interrupts any type of fanciful belief set that we might have that they're actually caught up in love one for another. Verse 19 says, Now when the virgins were gathered together for the second time, the king has not changed. His power has not limited. His view of humanity is not changed. He still thinks people are primarily there for his pleasure. And even though he's united in marriage to Esther, it hasn't changed who he is in his base appetite. And so this, this second gathering becomes the setting for what's going to be the conflict created in the story. And so in the midst of these things, we're, we're reintroduced to the character named Mordecai. Now, you remember that Mordecai adopted Esther when she was a girl because her parents had died. And so he's there, and, and Mordecai is in the gate uh, entrance to the, to the palace complex, referred to as the king's gate. So imagine this large building that you have to pass through to make it into uh, the grounds of the palace. And, and this building, about 13,000 square feet, is where commerce took place. And so you have some trade, some land deal you need to finalize. You go in and, and you meet with one of the attendants for the king. And this is Mordecai's job. So he's a mid-level paper pusher for the Persian Empire. And this is what he's doing. And so while he's in there one day and he's working and, and all these things are going on with the, with the king and the harem, Mordecai begins to overhear these two guys have a conversation. And, and you'll read in there that the characters' names are Bigthan and Teresh. And these guys are bodyguards for the king. 
And so their job is to stand outside of his apartment, outside of his private residence, and keep bad actors from coming in, to keep people that would seek to do harm or just interrupt the guy's sleep. Maybe he likes a good nap in the afternoon. And so this is their job. And for whatever reason, uh, Bigthin and Teresh, they are furious. There's something that the king has done that has really just kind of got them. And so they begin to talk and have this conversation of, do you hate him? Oh, man. I hate him. Do, but do you hate him, hate him? Like, what do you mean when you say hate him, hate him? You know, do you want him to die? Oh, yeah, for sure. Then I hate him, hate him. Well, what would you think if we came together and maybe we worked something out, they're kind of feeling each other out in this conversation, and, I don't know, maybe good king was a dead king. What would you think about that? And they're like, that sounds like a great idea. I wrote in my diary this morning. I wonder what Big Thane would think about this. And Trush is like, I wrote in my diary this morning. Let's kill him. What do you think? And Mordecai's over there just like filing paperwork, stamp, stamp. What did they say? And in that moment, he's faced with a choice. He doesn't think that the king is a good person. He knows he's not. But in that moment, he's faced with a choice. Will he keep it to himself, allow this plan to be enacted, or will he say something? Will he seek to stop what these guys are planning? And so the text goes on and it tells us that he, he does get engaged. He passes it on to his adopted daughter. She tells the king. They investigate it, verse 23. When the affair was investigated, it was found to be so. So what does it say? The men were both hanged on the gallows. Now, this isn't some uh, a serene kind of, of, of hanging. What is actually probably described here is that these guys were impaled. This is the kind of, this is the task that the Persian Empire set out when somebody offended them, when somebody did something wrong. They would take and they would build a large platform. They'd take a post and set that on there. And then they would kill the person and then hang their body on that post. So that everybody walked by when they saw and they said, oh man, what did these guys do? They say, these guys sought to rebel against the king. These guys sought to rebel against the empire. This is what happens when you step out of line. This is what happens when you do something wrong. So that everybody that saw them would come away with this understanding, don't cross the king. Don't cross the king. When you think about this, and you think about the fact that, that Mordecai stepped in, that he spoke in the midst of this deal, and then he passed it up the line, and that ultimately the king's life was saved. And we get down to the end of this, it says, and it was recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. So somebody sat there and wrote, it says, Big Thanatoresh tried to kill you, and the guy that saved you, the guy that passed on the information, his name was Mordecai. And somewhere in the recesses of the king, he says, mm, that sounds like, mm, mm-hmm, yeah. And it just passes on. Because what we find when chapter 3 opens up is that nothing was done for Mordecai. He is not thanked. He is not rewarded. In fact, the action that takes place seeks to punish him for being who he is. It says, after these things, the king promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamandatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And so we come to this understanding that some guy we've not met yet, that some guy we've not been introduced to yet, he gets rewarded. And so inside us, there's this understanding, well, hold on, Mordecai did this great thing for the king, why is he not the one being rewarded, and who is Haman the Agagite? Well, we have to go elsewhere to find this answer. When uh, Israel is held in captivity by the Egyptians, when they are enslaved to the Egyptians, 
You'll remember this, that God raises up Moses. Moses leads them out of Egypt. He's taking them toward the promised land. They cross over the Red Sea. And the first people they encounter is this guy named King Amalek. And he ends up being the head of the Amalekites. And so he goes out and he attacks Israel. Unprovoked, he goes out and he attacks them. And so what do they do? They fight against them. And we read this insightful word here in chapter 17 of the book of Exodus in verse 16. It says, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So we get the sense that even in the midst of the beginning of their journey, this is going to be this constant thorn. This is going to be this constant irritant that's going to arise again and again and again. And in fact, it does. In the book of 1 Samuel, uh, the first king that Israel gets is a guy named Saul. He is just not drop dead handsome. He's heads and shoulders above everybody else. This is what the text said. This isn't me having some type of crush on Saul. That would be weird. And so this is what it says about him. He, he is amazing. He's going out. He's winning all kinds of battles for them. And then he has to go out and he has to fight the Amalekites. And in the midst of fighting the Amalekites, he's told they all need to be put to death. And so it's kind of echoing this Exodus 17 language. Don't save anything. They all need to be put to death. But what do we find? Saul doesn't do it. He saves one man, and what is his name? His name is King Agag. The descendant, or his descendant, would be Haman the Agagite. So Saul's failure led to the possibility of Haman being born. And what have we also found? Well, back in chapter 2 and verse 5, what we found was that that Mordecai is a descendant of Saul. He's from the line of Kish, Saul's father. He's a Benjaminite. And so what we see is that this, this incident stirred up hundreds of years before is finally coming to a head again. Mordecai representing Saul and Haman representing the Amalekites and King Agag. And so this is the guy that's been raised to power, raised to authority. In fact, the king set him just below himself so that if Haman were to walk in that door right there and edict was given, that all of us would have to pay homage, all of us would have to bow down uh, to him. And so this is the scene that's set. So Haman is walking through the king's gate. Everybody's bowing down. Everybody's paying homage to Haman because the king had commanded. But what does it say in verse 2? It says, Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to Haman. He didn't do it. Was this going to go, is this going to pass? Is this going to be okay? What's, what's, what's the story going to convey to us? Because we already get the sense that the Amalekites represented by Agag and the Jews, Israelites represented by Mordecai, they don't like one another. And so here's the situation. Haman walks in the back gates, Mordecai sees him, and somehow he knows who this guy is. He knows his lineage, he knows from his gate, he knows from his walk, he knows from a personal interaction he's had. He's not bowing down, he's not giving any type of deference, any type of recognition to this guy. And there's some other people walking along with Haman. They look back and they see Mordecai over here. And he's not bowing down, he's not doing what everybody else is doing. So they go over to him and say, listen, listen, Mordecai, are you aware of what the king said? Mordecai says, yeah, man, I, I, I got it. I understand. Yeah, but you need to bow down. He doesn't respond. And so they go to him day after day after day. Mordecai, you need to bow down. Mordecai, you need to bow down. Mordecai, you need to bow down. And the only thing he tells them is, I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew. 
Now, contained in that could be any number of things, but that's the only response he gives them is that I am a Jew. And so they go to Haman. They're like, what do we know? Maybe this is all he needs to hear. Hey, Haman, listen, I know everybody needs to bow down to you. This guy Mordecai, he's not bowing down to you. So we want to see verse 4, will his words stand? Is this sufficient? Is this a big deal? Like, are, are you going to make a big deal out of this? And, and uh, Haman is furious. Verse 5 says, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down, Haman was filled with fury. He was so furious. The second most powerful man in the entire Persian empire, and he's being disregarded by a low-level bureaucrat. He's being disregarded not just by a low-level bureaucrat, but he's being disregarded by a man whose family had sought to inflict harm on his family. People pitted in this perennial fight one against the other. So what does it tell us? It says, so Haman sought to destroy all of the Jews. See, it wasn't just enough for Haman that he would seek to destroy Mordecai. He wanted every Jew everywhere to die. Well, this created a problem. Because the Jews were a part of the Persian Empire. And so Haman had to come up with this plot, this plan to put them to death. He had to come up with some type of vehicle to bring it in to all Jews everywhere. And so he gets in there. And effectively what the text tells us next is that Haman grabs a couple of dice. And he begins to kind of cast them out because he wants to know when is the best time for this thing to happen. And so this is Five, uh, five years later, Esther's been queen for about five years. Haman's in a room, gathered together with a couple of his buddies, and they're rolling dice, and they've got them shaking. Mom needs a new pair of shoes, and they throw them five, six. They don't die today. So they look at the next day, and they roll them, roll them, roll them, and they throw them double sixes. They don't die today, and they do this, looking at a calendar day after day after day after day after day, trying to find what is the most auspicious day for this attack to take place. And eventually, they land on the fact that the attack needs to take place in the 12th month of the year. So he's got his target, every Jew everywhere. He's got his date, the last month of the year. So then he has to go before the king. And Haman's clever. I mean, he's so incredibly clever. He knows that this story has to be so good, so delicate, and so close to the truth that it won't be questioned and that the king will let happen what he so desperately wants to happen. Not just Mordecai's death, but every Jew's death everywhere. So he goes in. And listen to what he says in verse 8 of chapter 3. There is a certain people. It's the most vanilla, nondescript, uh, reflection of any group of people you could ever give. There is a certain people. There are humans. I mean, <laughs> how's the king supposed to know who this is in his empire? He can't, and that's the whole point. There is a certain people scattered abroad, dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. What is he communicating? Effectively, there is an infection. They're hiding They've infiltrated. They're all over the entirety of your kingdom, all 127 provinces from Pakistan all the way down to the northern part of Sudan. And look at what he goes on to say about them. Their laws are different from those of every other people. They are distinct and they are different. And the Lord has made them this way. But the way, Hel the way Haman communicates this to them, he's trying to get the king to believe that their laws and their differences are a threat to the king. He says their laws are different from all the other people, and they do not keep the king's laws. Woo! Now this piques the king's interest. 
This has been his whole issue the entirety of the story, right? When he asked his wife to come in and she said no, he said, man, we need a law to make her say yes. We need a law that every woman has to honor every man over the entirety of the kingdom. The king is obsessed with laws. And here he hears there's a group of people who completely disregard his law. This can't stand. Haman goes on, he says, so that it is not in the king's profit to tolerate them. He said, listen, man, I, I understand where you're coming from. It's difficult to be king, especially when you've got people just kind of insidious living below the radar, breaking your laws day in and day out. You need to do something about them. But Haman realizes that this could be quite the expense for this king, this king who has almost bankrupted the Persian Empire. And so Haman wants to take care of that. He wants to make sure that's not, a, not, not an impediment to him buying into this process. So he says, listen, if it pleases the king, I mean, if this makes you happy, if this tickles your fancy, if this sounds good to you, you just need to know I'm going to take care of the bill. I'm going to cover it. If money is an obstacle, let me clear that for you. I'm going to give you 10,000 talents of silver. I'm going to pay those into the charge of, of those who have charge of the king's business. So what is he talking about? He says, I'm going to give you fully two-thirds of the annual tax base for the entire Persian Empire. Somehow, Haman had a terrific sum of money, and this is likely the reason the king advanced him in the first place. He needed friends and powerful people with deep pockets. He needed friends and powerful people with deep pockets. And so the king says, well, this sounds like a pretty good idea. So he reaches in, he takes his ring off, this seal, the kind of rubber stamp for all decisions that would be made. He puts it into Haman's hand. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you. The people also do with them as seems good to you. The king's trying to play it off like it's not a big deal. Effectively, he says, listen, I don't need the money. You keep the money. Here's my ring. All these people, this certain people, this rule-breaking people, the people that have infected my kingdom, you do with the money, you do with my ring, you do with them however you want. This king has such an incredibly low view of anybody other than himself. Doesn't raise his pressure, he doesn't investigate, he merely gives over to Haman his very heart's desire to bring these people to an end. So the plan is enacted. A plan to kill, a plan to annihilate, a plan to destroy, a plan to bring to an end God's people. Verse 12 says, The king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps, to the governors, to all the provinces, and all the officials, and to all the people, in every province in its own script, in every people in its own language. It was written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring. So here's the deal. They bring in enough translators, they bring in enough couriers to translate it into every tongue so that when everybody gets this message, they know clearly what has to transpire. They don't want there to be any miscommunication. They don't want there to be any lack of clarity. And so they're going to make sure that this thing is sent out with all haste. Since the letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions, listen to this, verse 13, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate. To destroy, to kill, to annihilate. There could be no question. There could be no confusion. Everyone had to die. Haman so desperately wants to make sure that this is carried all the way through. It doesn't just say, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate. It goes on, it says, all Jews, young, old, women, children, everybody, 
And then he restricts it. He doesn't want this to be some type of protracted deal. He wants it to be restricted. And he says they all need to die in one day. The 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. And a copy of the document was issued with a decree in every province by the proclamation, listen to who it goes to, to all peoples to be ready for that day. So this is a scenario. Haman gets his way. The king says, don't even worry about the money. That's on me. So Haman has this letter sent out. That when it's sent out, you would have received it. It would have gone and then been broadcasted to the city. And it's a clear instruction that everybody you knew who was Jewish, every man who you knew was Jewish, every woman who you knew was Jewish, every child who you knew was Jewish, it was your responsibility as a citizen of the empire to put them to death. I think there's a way to read this and a way to understand this that sees this as being something remote and outside of the ordinary normal experience of the average Persian citizen, right? But Haman wasn't using the army. Haman wasn't using militia. Haman wasn't using any type of of National Guard that he was going to call up. He was using ordinary, normal, everyday citizens. Imagine if you were to receive a notice at your home that said, 11 months from now, we're going to need you to kill your neighbor. Yeah, you just live beside them for the next 11 months, but, but at the end of that time, we're going to need you to murder everyone in their house, from the oldest to the youngest, leave nobody alive. But the good news is you get to take all their stuff at the end of that. That's the letter Haman writes. That's the letter he sends out. And he sends out this letter so that it has an 11-month trail behind it. So they receive the letter. And for the next 11 months, they wait. They have the specter of death and impending doom hanging over their heads. And, and maybe you read it and you say, you know, this is such a big deal. What I would have done if I were there is just kind of get on my horse and just ride and just kind of get out of the neighborhood, relocate. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a great idea, except for the fact that the whole known world for them was the Persian Empire. There's nowhere they could go. There's nowhere they could be to escape. Their day was coming and they couldn't escape it. Anywhere they could go outside the Persian Empire, it would be like walking in saying, uh, hey, I'm here to escape. And they say, did you just come from the Persian Empire? And you say, oh, well, yeah. And they're like, well, now we're going to have to kill you because you're our enemy. And so they can stay and die. They can leave and die. But the only thing for them was an impending death. This is what awaited them. And this is what Haman so desperately desired to see it wasn't just enough to kill everybody but he made every person in the kingdom a murderer he made them all culpable he made them all guilty he was going to stain the hands of many people in the empire with blood because that was going to finally satisfy his quest to receive back to him what had happened when his pride was injured by Mordecai and finally visit the wrath that he had felt from the death of his ancestor, Agag. Verse 15 says, The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Listen to this. Listen to the cool, detached nature of the king. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the entire city of Susa was thrown into confusion. 
Haman says, man, all this talk of death and all this watching them translate has really made me thirsty. You want to grab a drink? And the king says, man, I thought you'd never ask. I'd love to sit and drink. And so there's this kind of image of them going out and sitting on this balcony overlooking the city from the citadel as people begin to hear this word, hear ye, hear ye. Everyone here must kill every Jew they know in 11 months from now. And they begin to think, it's not just Mordecai. This is people we trade with, people we know, people maybe we're married into families with. They all have to die. So the whole corpus of this entire city is stirred into chaos, thinking about how incredibly devastating this will be. Think about it from this perspective. Mordecai's working at the king's gate. He overhears two of the king's bodyguards talking about how they're going to kill the king. He does nothing. The king dies, Haman's never elevated. The Jews are never threatened in this way. We get the sense that on the basis of his good deed, all were about to be punished. When we begin to think about that in terms of how we live and how we make decisions, there, there, there is a way that we have just kind of gone through and learned making decisions on the basis of what is the outcome going to be for me. You take it from the basis level and the most kind of ordinary level of a child. A child's in the bathroom. You've told your kid to go in there. Go brush your teeth. They've been in there a, 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 a longer time than necessary, and you've seen their teeth. You know that's not all teeth brushing that's taking place. And so you call out and say, have you brushed your teeth yet? Well, they're faced with a choice. Do I say I brushed my teeth and it just goes on? Or do I tell them, no, I haven't brushed my teeth and potentially face some type of punishment? No candy, or I don't know how you punish your kids for not brushing your teeth. We consider cavities to be kind of a natural consequence. And so it doesn't take too many times of this. And so they just kind of slip the toothbrush under the water. It's wet. If mom and dad go in to check it, they're going to find out, oh, yeah. And they're like, this doesn't smell like fresh toothpaste with a little bit of spaghetti. You had spaghetti for dinner. Why am I not tasting? And sm- tasting? What? Why am I picking up a slight bouquet of spaghetti with a hint of spearmint? You didn't really brush your teeth, did you? Did you wash your hands after you used the bathroom? Sure did. And so begin to kind of teach them this understanding that there is a way to avoid consequence by merely just kind of playing it off. And the whole thing begins to kind of cascade and, and we find ourselves restricting the good that we do on the basis of what is the outcome and how is it going to affect or impact me. And if it doesn't impact me enough, we begin to ask ourselves the question, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to work hard if my boss doesn't see? Is it worth it to work hard if, if there's no raise for me? Is it worth it to work on my marriage? It's just my wife and I, you know, it's okay to have a humdrum, okay marriage. Is it okay not to share the gospel? Surely somebody else would do it. Is it okay to fudge just a little bit on my taxes? The federal government takes in way more money and they spend it so irresponsibly. Is it okay? Doesn't impact me, is it okay? We get the sense in scripture 
that we don't just obey, we don't just do good on the basis of what it will return to us. One of the simple places that we go to in Colossians 3 and 23 says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So we get this sense that if you are a Christian, if you're a person who has submitted yourself to Jesus, then everything you do should be done in submission to him. And this begins to radically transform our approach to the workplace. Like Christians should not be a bunch of slovenly, half-hearted men and women engaged in a task that we'd otherwise describe as mundane, going about and working hard only when somebody's watching or only working hard when it would benefit us. We should be working hard all the time. Why? Because we work diligently as unto the Lord. So the way we work, the way we parent, the way we invest in our community is a reflection of our submission to him, not on the basis of what will happen to us. This is what he calls us to. This is what he sees us doing and engaging ourselves. We think about it in terms of school. Whether you have the the understanding that D means diploma and C means credit, as a Christian, you should be a person who is actively engaging yourself, working hard at school. Christians should have the best marriages. Why? One, because we recognize we're two horrible sinners trying to honor God in the midst of it. So we have no illusions as to whether or not we're two good and great uh, people who have all of these points of, of that are complementing one another. My strengths benefit her weaknesses. Her weaknesses benefit my strengths. We recognize we're both horrible, terrible sinners. We're doing the very best we can in submission to the Lord. But as we seek to honor him and glorify him, this is why I serve my wife. This is why I sacrifice for my wife. This is why she does the same for me. And this is what we're raising our children in. We want our kids to see a gloriously beautiful picture of the gospel in our home and how we love one another and how we raise them. And when we fail, shocker, we do. We confess our failures to each other, to the Lord, and when it is appropriate. You confess those failures to your kids because you're going to fail your children. Listen, some of us in the way we parent, in the way we live our marriages, we're painting a false narrative for our kids that they're never going to be able to attain because we're not giving them an inside view to the reality of our fallenness and how we struggle against sin when it is appropriate. When, it's in a, when it is appropriate, show your ch- children how you graciously receive forgiveness at the hand of a glorious father so that they will want the same thing, so that they will follow you into that same relationship and pattern and behavior. Some of us, when we evaluate our lives, it's not a matter of looking at and saying, well, it's not a good thing I did. I'm more reflective on the terrible thing I did. We think about the things that we've done. We think about the ways that we've failed. We think about all the various elements of our past that lead us to walk in shame. That lead us to wonder, can I be redeemed? Can I do well? Or am I really doing good when it benefits myself? And you struggle. You struggle with whether or not God accepts you. You struggle with whatever your relationships with the people around you should look like. And you struggle with what is my future because I'm a person who's only ever just managed that that good enough is good enough. We have this glorious picture of Jesus in the Gospels of how he 
receive people, of how he was near to the brokenhearted. And in Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 28, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And some of us are so incredibly tired of carrying the burdens of our past failures. So incredibly tired and and, and born over with burden of thinking about all the ways that we suppose we have been a chronic disappointment to the Lord. A disappointment to our families, a disappointment to our community. And we're asking the question, what is there for me? And the Savior says to you when you ask the question to him, come. Come and lay down your burden. Come and lay down your mistakes. Come and lay down your heartaches. Come and lay down your future, your present that is burning to the ground. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. And there is rest to be had. The redemption he won for you, the forgiveness he has for you, is there for you today. Would you come and receive? Would you come and find hope? Would you come again and receive forgiveness? We look at the world and begin to ask the question and we see untold harm repeatedly perpetuated in our world. Think about since 1973, over 60 million children in America have been aborted. Think globally about how much higher that is. We think daily about 2,000 children being aborted, and we begin to steer into that and wonder, what can I do? We feel like the evils of the world and the evils of the world empire are simply insurmountable. The Bible doesn't call us to transform that. It's this glorious picture. The Bible doesn't put it upon us and say, this is your responsibility to fix, your responsibility to change. The Bible simply calls us to be two things in the midst of this world empire, salt and light. In Matthew 5, Jesus is speaking in the midst of this, and he says, you are the salt of the earth. As a salt has lost its saltiness, can it be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under feet. The salt adds this savor and preserving element to the world. But how does salt find effectiveness in anything? It's by coming in close contact with it. Salt only works through contact. And so what does that mean for us? It means that if we are to have any type of impact on this world, you're going to have to be in close contact with it. It means seek out and make friends with people who don't share the same worldview that you do. Don't have all your friends look just like you, sound just like you, and also have a Fox News bumper just like you. Find people, if if you're at a Fox News, find somebody, just walk up and say, let me ask you a question, Word Association, MSNBC. If they say, favorite channel, that's a best friend for you. Come on now. Man, if you're going to be salt, find somebody that it could affect. Find someone that it could impact. And then the idea that, that is a complement to that, be light. Live out a faith that is, is transformative, that is vibrant, so that when someone sees you, when they see your family, they hear how you make decisions, they are engaging distantly from you. Even at a great distance, they can tell this person is different. 
They're different in what I hear about them. They're different in what I see in them. This person is different. Let us choose people in an effort to be redemptive who have, a trans- have the ability to be transformed by virtue of our presence in their lives. Think about this idea of no good deed going unpunished. Man, maybe you're here today and you say, this doesn't make any sense to me. Man, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a person who has submitted myself to Jesus. What good has Jesus done in the midst of all these things? We see this amazing thing that God sent his son into a world filled with chaos. He sent his son knowing full well that his son would be betrayed, that his son would be beaten, knowing full well that his son would be crucified. And the author of Hebrews has these incredibly instructive words for us in the first two verses. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, doing what? Looking to Jesus. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And Jesus stepped into a broken humanity. He stepped into the midst of history, people chasing every desire that they had, following not after the Father, but following after their own hearts. And he sent his son Jesus to endure the cross to bring us to him so that our sins might be forgiven. And this creator God sent his son to be the redeeming agent for humanity, and he calls you today to come to him. He's not seeking for you to do good. He's not seeking for you to be good. He's not seeking for you to make a better environment or situation for yourself. He's seeking for you to admit you're broken, confess you're fallen, and receive his forgiveness. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you've given us this picture of the power of the gospel contained within Esther that even though occasionally it feels like there is no good deed we do that doesn't go unpunished that the world is still spinning desperately out of control we thank you for your son Jesus whom you sent to redeem us to save us to take on sin for us. And so we submit this to you in his name. God, I pray for those in this room who have yet to submit themselves to your son. God, that you would call them to salvation. That you would save them from a desire to be good, an acceptance of being indifferent. God, that you would completely transform their hearts and mind and all this by the power of your spirit. God, I pray that you would lead those of us who know your son Jesus to be at work in your community, to be at work doing good in a a desire to honor and glorify you in all that we say and all that we do. We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.